All right, so we are, man, has, there isn't anybody alive who would not say that 2020 has been a test. An exam, a dissertation. One of the things that has been tested the most in, in churches across the country, including our church, is what it means to be part of a family. You see, when, when things seemed good on, in February and January, we would gather together, be 200 plus people in here, and we would talk and we had a routine and, and people would hang out and then you'd go out to lunch afterwards and it just seemed like, man, this is our church. We're grateful people were coming. They, they saw the fellowship and the camaraderie and the family atmosphere. We laugh together, we pray together, we cry together, we encourage one another. We're a part of a family. Even people who don't know each other that well, they, they accept what Jesus said when he said, who are my mother, sister, and brothers? Those who, who believe in me are my mother, sister, and brothers. They believed in the redefinition of family that Jesus taught, and that's what our church has wonderfully been, as many other churches have. But COVID 2020 has tested us. We have been tested. In the last seven months, I've heard, Mike and I have heard, to varying degrees, different responses to different things. We've heard gratitude for messages that have been taught, things that have been communicated. We're grateful. We've heard, this is hard for me to apply. hard to process. Understandable. We've heard, I don't like talking about this issue. I'm not into politics. I don't like talking about race. Why are we discussing this in the church? We've heard, I don't struggle with this issue. I'm not on social media. Why are we discussing these things? Because we're a family. Have you considered that God may be teaching you how to love other people who struggle with things that you don't? Have you considered that? When you think about what resonates with you have you considered that other people may actually need what you don't want? When all of this started, one of the first things that I said, we came into the year with an impeachment. And then shortly after that, Kobe Bryant died. And many of us were just, whether you knew him or not, or liked basketball or not, it was, for some reason, when celebrities die, what seems to be unexpected, it just makes you think about your own death. And then right after his death, within weeks, COVID came. And on Sunday, March 15th, there were 237 people in this room. And I did a message on God's sovereignty that was supposed to prepare us for Romans chapter 9. 
And I said, before we get to Romans 9, then everyone started laughing. Because people understood that Romans 9, 10, and 11 have some challenging words. I had no idea that that message on God's sovereignty was not preparing us for the book of Romans, but was preparing us for the test of a lifetime. Because the following week, you couldn't have more than 250 people gathered together, and there were 100 people in this room. And we talked about don't live in fear, don't live as a fool, and don't forget one another. The following week, on March 29th, for the next four months, there were less than 10 people in here every Sunday. COVID came. Then Ahmaud Arbery gets shot. Then Breonna Taylor. And then Amy Cooper threatens to call the police on a man in Central Park who done nothing wrong on Monday. And then on Wednesday, George Floyd. And people just snapped. People snapped. I'm not talking about the church, our church necessarily, but people snapped. You know, we're, we're in America, and we're used to certain, certain privileges. And in fact, the, the mental health of the nation is largely connected to our ability to do the things that we enjoy, to do things that we want. And when you take that away, when you take away the ability to do what we want, it becomes a disability. People are struggling. All of a sudden, there's a new virus that we don't know if we're going to die or not. We don't know if people we care about are going to die or not. And it became a significant strain. And now we're afraid. We're anxious. We're angry. And for some, the ability to even reason becomes challenging. To put things in perspective. Because what COVID did, and this is why we talked about the psychological impact was what we were worried about because what it did and not being around people and having the fear of what may happen to us where if every kiss begins with K, where every cough may, was COVID. And all of a sudden, just that tension, that tension, that tension made some of us unintentionally forget that there are people who have concerns that we don't. Yeah. Yeah. It, made, it, made, it made us think about the world according to self. And then as a result of all these things, all of a sudden, critiques start to happen. Critiques of America, and people took that personal. People took critiques of America as equal to a lack of love of America. But how so? Some of the critiques weren't even individual. They were national, historical. And people, believers, offended. But when God critiques us, it's not a, it's not a lack of love, is it? Critique is, is biblical. I'll be the first to say, for all that America isn't, I still love what America is. Yeah. This is my country. 
I've never lived and have no desire to live anywhere else until eternity. But it's unbiblical to think of myself as an American more than a Christian. I will never believe in the spirit of America over the spirit of God. And so as God is critiquing things, in, then sin starts to get exposed. And, and, and we forget that God doesn't expose our sin to show us what we're not. He exposes our sin to show us what he saved us to be. But because we are so affected, our, our mental health has been disturbed. Our ability to do the simple things that we enjoy without fear of any consequences has, has deadened our sensitivities that now we're too sensitive. God is exposing, not because he's angry or just that, but to the believer, he's exposing a lovelessness that has been pervasive in our culture. Do you know biblical love is the one thing that separates us from everyone else? Every major religion prays to that God evangelizes. Non-Christians love their spouses and children, don't cheat on their taxes. Morality by itself doesn't make us uniquely different, but being motivated to love because of God's love for us is so distinctly Christian that God himself says if you're not loving, you're not Christian. This is a supernatural love that works itself out in the natural world through us. The scripture said, be in the world, not of it. And by the grace of God, in many ways, our church has been exemplary in this. It's why people are drawn to our church. It's why our church is diverse. Our church isn't diverse because of me or Mike. You can hear a good sermon anywhere if and when we teach them. Our church is diverse because the Lord is doing something in the community and having people desirous of being together who don't have the same things in common, who vote differently, who have different food tastes, who think differently, who have different sin struggles, who have different, who have different economic struggles, who have different seasons of life struggles. Our church has been exemplary in living this out, but we're not exempt. We're not exempt. And I care too much about this church to not remind us of what we need to continue to press in to be. So we've been reminded to not live in fear to not live as a fool, to not forget one another. We've been reminded that anger at God is a misunderstanding at the sovereignty of God. We've been reminded that when we can't see God working in the world, we must see him working in his word. We've been reminded of the schemes of the devil, that there is a real enemy, and he doesn't look like you or me or the people who think differently than you and me. There's a real enemy. And his job is to 
It's to affect your ability to worship God. His job is to cause division. We were reminded to stay balanced, to not let politics become the determining factor for who we are and remove relationships from people that we said we love prior to being separate to now all of a sudden we're evaluated. We, we, We heard stay balanced in that and people struggled with that and didn't like those messages because they're not into politics and that's fine. But have you considered that there are other people that struggle with things you don't because we're a family? It's not about you. It's about us. Have you considered the struggle your pastors have carried? Do you think it's been easy for Mike and I to come in to a church where we see things flourishing and we know our people are struggling and to call people throughout the week and hear some of the challenges they're facing, to hear from others the different challenges and to come up each week and try to think, Lord, give us a word to encourage, help us to remind people. Do you think it's been easy for us to come in and have to adjust to doing church a totally different way? Have you considered Your pastors have struggled too. Do you think because I teach that God is sovereign and if we get COVID, it's because he said that and if we don't, we don't, that that somehow eliminates my temptation to not want it and be afraid? Absolutely not. We're a family. We were reminded that we need to recalibrate. Let's step back and let's, 2.0 this thing. And now we're being reminded that we need to love biblically. Listen, I get that you haven't agreed with or liked everything that you've heard. There are things that I've had to teach this year that are not what I prefer to teach but I don't always teach what I want to teach. I teach what I feel like we need to be taught. You know why? Because it's not about me. It's about us. It's about us. And part of being biblically loving is to understand that. We've talked about what is love biblically, and I've defined it as this. Biblical love, it's a command to act sacrificially, motivated solely by God's love for us through Christ's sacrifice for our forgiveness that produces actions from us that imitate him for the benefit of others. Jesus didn't call us to feel deeper about people in and of itself. He called us to do to act differently towards those in the household of faith. Yes, we love our neighbors, but the the specificity of this command is towards other believers. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. We've asked ourselves questions like, what is the action of love required right now? That question is to help us moment to moment process. Okay, I'm not motivated by how I feel or how I think they feel about me. I'm motivated by how God feels about me. So what's the action that I need to take right now to be loving? Does it matter how I feel about you? 
If, if God were calling us to be loving based on feelings, we couldn't do it. I lack the capacity to do it because I don't have emotional love for everyone in this room because I don't have, I don't, I don't know you. I haven't put in enough time with you. But I can love you sacrificially. I can give you my time. I can do things to demonstrate that. I can, I can do things. I can do actions. We've heard to ask ourselves the question, how do I want others to treat me? We've heard the question, what opportunities will I have to do good today? These are things we're learning as a family. And while we've been exemplary in many ways, our church, we're not exempt. Last week, we talked about when to love, which is when we have opportunity. And we looked at Galatians 7, and we talked about the sowing and reaping, the, the casting, the scattering of seed, and that the seed will grow something up. And, and so not, be, not to give up doing works that are good because at the proper time, God will give us the harvest and it may not be in this life. The sowing and reaping is about habits and results. Where today I want to continue with that particular theme. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4 and break it up in three sections. And I want to focus really on the last section so I'm going to hit the first two sections at sort of 30,000 feet and just make some observations of the verses. And then we're going to zoom in to the third section, which I think pertains to what I think the Lord has for us today. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says this, and I quote. Reading to verse 9, it says this, and again, he began to teach by the sea a very... Very, and a very large crowd gathered around him. So he got into a boat on the sea and sat down while the whole crowd was by the sea and on the shore. He taught them many things in parables and in his teaching. He said to them, listen, consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil. And it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. For when the sun came up, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it didn't produce fruit. And still other seed fell on good ground and it grew up, producing fruit that increased 30, 60 and 100 times. Then he said, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. So here Jesus is teaching here, just a few observations. We're not going to go verse by verse like I normally would because I want to get to the end where I think the Lord is calling us to really get to sea level. So if we're at 30,000 feet, we're going to get to sea level by the end of this message. So I want to make just a few observations about this particular passage to help us understand what he's going to say later. This passage is bookended, Jesus' teaching is bookended by the word, listen. So verse 3, he starts off, listen. Verse 9, he ends. Those who have, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen. 
So it literally bookends. Starts off with listen, and this teaching in this section ends with the word listen. Jesus is drawing our attention. He's not saying, listen, can you audibly hear me? He's saying, listen, you need to do what I'm about to tell you to do. You need to believe what I'm about to tell you to believe. Jesus doesn't always say, listen, so when he does, we should actually do it. And he talks about a seed. Now, he does, Jesus uses a lot of farming analogies because that was the culture of the day. But a seed is easily discernible. It's easily to understand that a seed is something that is given, that grows, and that gives life. What does a seed is supposed to do? It's supposed to be given, grow, and then give life. So Jesus is telling the story of the seed. The seed goes to different conditions. It's almost like when you go to see a movie and they show like a Pixar movie before the real movie. And it's of like an acorn or a squirrel trying to get an acorn. And it's not the real, and you just watch this thing and the whole point is about this squirrel is going to die trying to get his acorn. And he never dies. Cats have nine lives. These squirrels have a million and twelve lives. Well, the story is the story of the seed. And it lands in different conditions. And it's clear from what Jesus says here that it only grew in one condition, which he called in verse eight, good ground. And then he says in that it produced fruit to varying degrees. Now, what you may not know is this. The original recipients of these words, the people who were directly standing in front of Jesus when he was on the boat hearing him say this, when they heard him say this, would have thought, man, 30, 60, 100 fold? That's like ridiculous. Because to them, if a seed grew 10 times greater, then that was, that was amazing. So Jesus is saying the seed that I'm talking about is going to grow 30, 60, 100 times greater. That's three, six, 10 times greater than what you're used to. The original hearers would have been like, what seed is this? I'm trying to plant that bad boy today. And then Jesus is done with the teaching. And in the second section, we pick it up in verse 10, reading 10 through 13. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the 12, so there were other people with the 12 disciples, and they asked him about the parables. He answered them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those outside, I mean those who are not you, everything comes in parables, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Then he said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? Let's make a few observations. 30,000 feet still. This is probably one of the most problematic things that Jesus has said. As many people, many theologians would say that. This is one of the most problematic things that Jesus has said. Because he quotes directly from Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And he says, look, so that they may indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. Well, isn't that why you came, Jesus? Uh, newsflash. Isn't that why you're here? Doesn't it sound like it's the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish? Now, if I were really, really going in, I'd say things I'm not going to say right now. 
I will say this, though. The point of the context from Isaiah 6, 9, which Jesus is quoting here, is that God's people had hardened their hearts so they could not hear him. So God chose to further harden their hearts. This was a judgment against people who had hardened their hearts. And so God says, I'm going to further judge them. And so Jesus is speaking to people and using this to indicate people have hardened their hearts. And so they're not going to get the straight truth. They got to actually work to understand what's being said. Now, some theologians think that this is God hardens people's hearts so they couldn't understand. And some people think not being able to understand what Jesus said will harden people's hearts. Whichever way you slice it, here's the truth of this passage. The consequences of rejecting God always lead to eventually being rejected by God. The consequences for rejecting him will eventually lead to being rejected by him. I would say more if I were going through this line by line, but let's get to the third section because this is where we're going to camp. Beginning in verse 14. He says this. Explaining the parable, explaining the parable. I will say this before I say that. Verse 13 is critical because he said this. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand all of the parables? In other words, Jesus is basically saying, if you don't understand this parable, how will you understand all of them? So the key to understanding all of Jesus's parables is that you understand this parable. But I'm not there today. I'm not going into that today. Here's what he says in verse 14. The sower sows the word. Here's his explanation of what it means. Some are like the word sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. So he says it. Look, some, so, the, so the sower, the seed is the word, right? It's the word of God, the truth of God. Some people are going to hear it and immediately the devil's going to take it away from them. and They're not going to believe and we've all experienced people like that. We've all shared the gospel with people and we could not figure out why do you keep rejecting this? What is the problem? Sometimes there are siblings or our parents or close family, co-workers. Jesus just says, look, Satan, he comes and takes the word that was sown in them. In verse 16, he says, and others are like the seed sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word immediately, they receive it with joy. But they have no root. They are short lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, they immediately fall away. So here are people that seem to respond to the gospel. You share the gospel, you're excited, there's faith, and then all of a sudden, whoa, what happens? When the persecution comes because of the word, maybe it's directly like if you believe in Jesus, you're persecuted by others. But I think when persecution comes for the word, where you need to, you're being persecuted by your own sin and you need to repent of those things. And people refuse to do that and so they end up walking away. And we think, man, how can anybody be saved? Maybe they never were. So they landed on solid ground, so they shot up. But then when it got challenging to be a Christian, deuces. I'm leaving. I've known people like that. We've lost people in this church like that. 
He says this in verse 18. Others are like seed sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those like seed sown on the ground hear the word and welcome it and produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. So here in verses 18 and 19, Jesus brings us in to a third seed, a third set of people. The seed lands on this particular group of people. And, they, and he says this, these are the ones who hear the word, so they hear it, they get it. But, verse 19, the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Jesus lays out sort of a wrong trinity here. The worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. All these are a trinity that lead you away from the word. When, this, when all this started with COVID, within two or three messages, I said to our church, it was in a Q&A, I said, my main concern is not even the economic impact, but the psychological impact. I said, that's my concern. Is I knew that, some, that we were going to be tested psychologically because it's going to be the first time that we're ever away from people like this by force. It's the first time that we're afraid to go to the grocery store. We're wiping everything down. Every cough is like, what you, what you, why are you coughing? I remember one time I had something in my throat and I was just like, <coughs> they were like you all right, man? Uh, I hope so, brother. I'm just clearing my throat. There's just this excitement about, whoa. You come in and you don't touch people, right? Air dap. Maybe an elbow. Psychological damage. People, I'm not coming back to church again. People saying things like, I'm, my, my introvert, my extrovert is dying. Not being around people is affecting me. And then sometimes only being around certain people is affecting the relationship. You didn't realize, man, I need, some, I need a break from this person. I, when we used to go to work and then, then we come back home, it was different. But now we're together, we're working from home all day. You get on my nerves. You need a shower every day. Maybe that's just my wife saying that. <laughs> the psychological impact of COVID has affected us. And I think this first illustration, this first person of this trinity is worries of this age. Whenever we focus on the worries of this age, we forget to focus on the glories of the age to come. 
And even though it takes some imagination, we forget to focus on that. And, we, 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 and worries, typically, worries are usually things that we don't want to happen to us or to people that we care about. And which means if, you, if it happens to somebody I care about, it happens to me. Something happens to my children, it's the same thing that's happening to me. Something happens to people I love, it's the same thing that's happening to me. And so we get worried about these things. And these things happen to become the priorities in this life. I've heard pastors say, different pastors I've talked to say this, and they said it not judging the person, but just surprised by it. They'll say stuff like this. Man, there was this lady, she was like, she was the faith lady in our church. She was like, no matter what was going on, she would encourage everyone to have faith that God is with them. And as soon as COVID hit, she's like, I ain't coming back to church for nothing, even the other people are. And he was like, man, what happened to all that faith? Other people are here and no one's gotten sick yet. The worries of this age take a unique priority in this life and they distract us from thinking about the age to come. That's why Jesus said, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Let it worry about itself. Because when you're worried about this age, faith is replaced by sight. I just need to see something. Yeah, I trust the Lord, but Faith, is, if, if, it's, if it's not replaced by sight, it gets redefined. So then it becomes faith in God to do the things I desire over faith in God to do this, the things as his will desires. And it becomes the world according to self. And then you start to do the opposite of the very things that we know to be true and that we agreed with. So now we're starting to, you start to live in fear. You start to live as a fool and you forget one another. Remember the sermon when I said, don't judge those who are coming to church and don't judge those who are not coming to church? Well, now there are people judging those who are not coming to church and there are people not coming to church judging those who are. passive-aggressive on Facebook. We're just worried about this age. Angry, frustrated, complaining, judgmental. Everything is wrong but the way you see things. Perhaps Maybe God is trying to teach us to love people who need things that we don't want or to be patient towards things that we don't struggle with. I personally don't struggle with a lot of anxiety and fear of man, but boy, do a lot of people. So what do I do? Man, you need to just get over it? Absolutely not. You don't help people from your strengths. You help people from your weakness. You remember the things that you're weak in, and then you realize this person might be there like you are in this area. 
That's how you take the log out of your eye. You remember that other people have issues too. It's not just about us. It's not just about you, it's about us. We forget about the enemy. We forget that the enemy is someone that we don't see. We make the enemy people that we do see. Or ideas that we don't like. And that's fine. We all have that. But have you considered that maybe other people care about things that you don't? And that in a church of a couple hundred people, the responsibility of myself and Mike and our leadership team and anyone in a particular leadership is to care about what everyone is struggling with. Not just you. See, when we're worried in this age, when the worries of this age block us from the glories of the other age, we start to insist on our own way. And even though we have been exempted, love, exemplary, we're not exempt. The second person of this trinity that Jesus said is the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, wealth in our country, no wealth biblically, what it means by wealth here is an abundance of material possessions and resources. Basically, you have more than what you need. Not that you have more than what you want. We tend to evaluate our wealth by what we want that we don't have. God says, no, evaluate it by what you need that you don't need. We all, everyone in here is dressed well. Maybe one or two not. But the most of us, I'm kidding. We're all dressed, have money to eat, and if not, you can ask someone for help. We all pretty much drove here or got driven here by someone else. And if you got a ride here, you probably didn't give no money for gas. You're doing good. <laughs> Causing conflict one statement at a time. <laughs> the deceitfulness of wealth is that you have more than what you need. It may not be more than what you want. And in our country, for most people, for most people, wealth is typically established through education. So people work hard to go to college. There's a book called The Meritocracy Trap written by a Yale law professor named Dan Markovitz. And he actually says, this is meritocracy. You work hard and you accomplish things. He actually says it's a fallacy. And his point is this that there are people who have different economic values. So he said, the average school, the average public school will give about eight to $10,000 per student. But those who were in the elite, he said, will pay, will, will give 75,000 per student. So people, parents who have a certain degree of income, they have the ability to make sure that their kids get tutored, to understand things, to get tested. And it's not just everyone's on equal ground, but you've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars more into this child, and now colleges are lowering their, their receive rates. So you acceptance rates. So you got like the University of Chicago 10 years ago accepted 46% of its applicants. Now only 6%. So you got to be the elite of the elite in the education. So if you ever messed up, if you didn't have, you ever messed up in sixth grade, they might look at that and be like, sorry, because there's so much competition to get into these elite schools because they produce finances. I have an article that I just saw yesterday that said the 50 richest people in our country are worth more than the 165 million people below them. They have more wealth than 165 million people combined. But many of us, it's education, right? 
We need a job. And praise God that he gives us those. We do need jobs. Scripture says if you don't work, you don't eat. Scripture says if a person doesn't, if a believer doesn't provide for his family, he's an unbeliever. There's nothing wrong with that. But the deceitfulness of wealth for us is not necessarily trying to be rich. It's just prioritizing our job over Jesus. Do you think it's a coincidence that the things of God are taken less seriously than the things on your job? Do you think that's a coincidence? That you will not watch church or not go to D group or show up to church late or be ambivalent? Do you think it's a coincidence that you would never do that on your job? But you'll do that in church all the time. And you can blame me or what I taught or what I said or what Mike said or this meeting or that we start late. You can blame whatever you want. But the reality is, is that you will give more attention, more alert to the material things of this world than some of the spiritual things. Some people will never do the things, will never show up to a meeting, would never miss a meeting that their boss called. Then why is it optional if your pastors call that meeting? That's not coincidental. There's something there. I'm not trying to shame you. Because we've all, it's not about making every meeting. We never lead like that. But boy, do we notice, though. And we don't always say things. I had a meeting last month that half the people showed up to that meeting. And not one of them said, hey, I can't make it. I would love to see you try that on your job. Try that on your job. It's not a coincidence. We put our jobs sometimes over Jesus. And I'm not talking about personal things. Listen, God didn't call us just to have a personal relationship with him. He called us to have a personal, a personal relationship with him in a community of people who are having a personal relationship with him so that we can mutually encourage one another with our personal relationships with him, establishing one with one another. The deceitfulness of wealth is our, we're alert for the material things, but not for the spiritual things. Man, we'll take, we'll take further education, we'll get certified, we'll do whatever we can to take this job to make more money, but then we struggle with having a 30-minute quiet time. We struggle with going to a prayer call because it's 7.30 in the morning, but if you have to take a class or to get certified in some way on your job, you will do it. Why? Because it'll make more money than I can do this, that, and the third. Be careful. Be careful. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying be careful. That it is not the deceitfulness of wealth that is choking you out. Do you honestly think God cares about how much money you actually make in light of eternity? Maybe God would rather have you reading and praying every day and he might just bless you anyway. See, we can be diligent for what may give us a raise, but stagnant toward the one who raised. And then when we say this stuff, it's like, then we get upset and it's like, oh, that's legalistic, or that's that, or curse saying this, or that, or I don't like when they say this, or that. Fine, I get it. Maybe I'm wrong, but be careful. Be careful. The deceitfulness of wealth, why do you think it's called deceitfulness? Because it's subtle. It doesn't say, hey, you're prioritizing your work over the Lord. 
You're prioritizing your job over Jesus. It doesn't work like that. It makes you think, hey, I'm not doing that. I'm just, I got a better, I need to do this, this, and this will be helpful. I can even give more to the church. I can do all these things, and then all of a sudden, you can't participate in the life of the church. But man, you won't miss a, 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 a meeting. Not do an assignment that your job, not do a project that your job told you to do. Do it consistently. See what happens. No one will do that because it's too important. Well, according to the Bible, so is this. It's too important. I'm not asking you to like it. I'm asking you to consider maybe, maybe, maybe you're complaining a little bit too much. Maybe you care about your job and what that, what that brings you a little too much. Maybe. The third of this, the third person, if you will, this Trinity, Jesus said, the desires for other things. Boy, is that an exhaustive list. Man, you could just keep going with this list. I mean, you could just say whatever. Let me say just a couple things that I think are more common among believers. Some in this church, some I've just seen in, in Christendom. Desires for other things. You know what one of them is? is that growth would be inevitable, inevitable instead of intentional. I think this is an epidemic among believers, that growth is inevitable, not intentional. But again, going back to your job, you have to do a good job to get promoted. And sometimes even when you've earned that promotion, you don't get it. Then you've got to deal with the drama of that, but you have to pretty much do a good job. You've got to work. You go to school to get a degree. Some people go get a master's degree and then go get a PhD. Why? Because it's, it's a better source of income. Listen, people don't go to school just to keep going to school. You're 50 years old and you're still in, in school. I'm not talking about like you taking some class. I'm talking about if you do it, if you're 50 and in school, it's for a reason. You're not like, you know what, man? I just feel like going back to college or something. I'm just chilling. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. And people highlight the exception, and they're like, that's the rule. No, of course there's somebody saying that. But for the most part, people go to school so that they can further their career, make more money. And for believers, sometimes we will sacrifice the inevitability of growth versus its intentionality. So just because I'm a believer, I'm just going to grow. Yeah, I'm not going to spend that much time with the Lord. I'm too tired in the morning to read. I'm not a reader. I don't memorize scripture, all the things that we say. As if the Lord is like, hey, but I'm going to keep having you grow anyway, though. <laughs> and you know what? By his grace, he still does. But growth is not inevitable. It's intentional. The people who think growth is inevitable are the people who eventually shout, sh sprout up and then walk away. You got to, let me prove the point. I can prove the point just by the one, one word in the Bible. One word in the Bible proves what I'm saying to be true. It's the word perseverance. Or another word, same word, endure. Jesus said whoever endures to the end will be saved. Whoever perseveres to the end. Perseverance isn't, isn't passive. It's active. 
Desires for other things produce selective participation, optional obedience. Listen, we don't do that much in our church that we got to, we ain't one of them churches that like, man, we got, we got Bible study on Monday. We got prayer meeting on Tuesday. We got deacon meeting on Wednesday. We got evangelism meeting on Thursday. We got a worship meeting on Friday. We got a prayer meeting on Saturday. We got church on Sunday. We ain't one of them type churches. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm puzzled at some of the complaints. Like, what church do you think you go to? We don't have a lot of things that we require of people, and people still will complain about the little things that we have to do. Everything is for our eternal benefit. I don't want to have meetings either. <laughs> I'm good. But the desires for other things affect us. And then in verse 19, here's what it says they do. It enters in and chokes the word. Now think about that language. It enters in. Entering in is the impression of your guard is down. You've let your guard down. This is not forcible entry Jesus is talking about. This isn't the fight of the enemy trying to find a way to get into your life and convince you to be bitter, judgmental, unloving, or whatever it is, or complain, or, to, or, to put, or put work over him, or whatever it is. That's not it. He's talking about it enters in. Knock, knock. Come on in. And walks in. Your guard is down. Brother and sister, your guard may be down. Maybe not. But it may be down. And he says, if that thing enters in, it's going to choke the word that you have in you. All of a sudden, now it's just difficult to pray. I don't have a desire to read. I can't even stay awake in church. Let me cook breakfast and let me work on this thing for work while I'm listening to the sermon. Let me be distracted. Let me be on my iPad and on my phone. Let me be return, replying to this text. Let me do all these things while the word is being preached, while I'm supposed to be singing. For the one time a week, the one time a week where my attention should be fully God, let me do a couple of other things while I'm supposed to be paying attention to God and then wonder why I'm not getting anything from the sermon or from the reading because I'm not investing in those things because my desires for other things have allowed the enemy to walk in and start choking out the word and we don't even see it. We don't see it. And now the problem is somebody else. I don't like this book. I don't like this message. I don't like this. I don't like that. Maybe. 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 The issue is you. Maybe. Maybe the desires for other things, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the worries of this age. I know I've been distracted by some of these things. Worries of this age. I mean, I'm convinced I ain't going to be wealthy, so I'm not really deceived by it. I'm just, I'm just settling on it. I'd be in here with flip-flops with staples in them and shirts that are held together. I'm all right with that. I got a soccer mom van. When I get pulled over, police don't have no issues with me. They see the van, I'm like, hey, how you doing, man? They look and they see how dirty the van is. They be like, yep, he's good. Don't even worry about your license registration, man. Get on home to your kids. But you know what, though? Worries of this age, sure. Desires for other things, absolutely. Absolutely. I struggle with this. 
I struggle with selective participation, optional obedience. I struggle with grace being so amazing that God is okay if I just fall a little bit. I struggle with worrying about things, worrying about how my mom's doing, how people are doing, how my wife and kids are doing, how you all are doing. People are asking me to come out and travel, and I'm like, nah, my wife is like, nah, don't travel yet. Want me to come out and speak? I'm like, nah, can we do it through Zoom? <laughs> Going on a retreat with a couple pastors and some big dogs from Acts 29, September, November 1st to the 4th. Driving down to Virginia somewhere. Oh, man, I don't really want to go. What if I get pulled over? Virginia, I'm not, I'm not, I don't like Virginia as much. Virginia is a little stricter. All that stuff. We're all prone to it. I never preached to you coming on the mountain with two stone tablets, but don't think I ain't going to say something. Because we all are prone to the possibility of this third seed. But by the grace of God, there's one more seed in verse 20. And those like, like seed sown on good ground, hear the word, welcome it, and produce fruit. 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown. The good ground is a postured heart that believes with genuine faith. That's the good ground I'm talking about. And that will bear fruit. He says, and those, like the seed sown on good ground, hear the word he said, welcome it. Welcome it. Do we welcome it? Do we welcome it? There are many people I can say, yes, yes. Praise God. But we're not exempt. You see the contrast between the, 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 the deceitfulness of wealth and that wrong trinity that comes in and chokes the word, it enters in? See the contrast? It enters in that one. It enters in. But then this one, Jesus said, is welcomed in. So it's one thing to have your guard down and some sneak in. The good ground says not come in. Come in. And there are many in our church, many in this room, who are producing fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. We must not put our guard down. Some of us are slowly letting our guard down. Listen, whenever the problem is everything else, it's probably you. This is a general rule of thumb. What's beautiful about this, this analogy and this particular seed that, we, that by the grace of God, many of us are bearing fruit in is I love that he gives varying degrees of growth. 30-fold is still growing. 60-fold is still growth. Not everyone's fruit is going to look the same, you see? So somebody might struggle with anxiety that you don't, but they're bearing fruit. They love Jesus. Someone may struggle with lust or anger, and you don't. Someone may struggle with fear of who wins the presidency, and you don't. 
Someone may struggle with just with, with being on social media too much, and you don't. There's varying degrees of maturity, varying degrees of fruit, and we have to accept that because we're family. Fruit will be produced and is being produced because of faith in God. And that's always, that's always what's made Solid Rock special. Always. Listen, I used to say this phrase all the time. I haven't said this in a long time. I used to say this phrase. I used to say about our church. That's what I said. I, I, people would ask us about, about our church all the time. I'd do interviews or preach somewhere, and people would ask about our church. And I would just say, you know, our church is not impressive, but we're not impressed either. There's nothing impressive about us. But we're not impressed with what, what, either. You're not going to just come in and just Nah, we're just a rock. This is solid rock, baby. You can't just come in here and say anything. You got people to come in here and think they're going to change the world, and it's like, man, first learn how to change a diaper, work in children's ministry. This church has borne fruit for 47 years. You know, 47 years ago, this church started because 19 people felt like black people should be able to go to a church because the church they were in would not allow black people to come. They started this church 19 years ago and one person, Rowena, is still here. And in 47 years, look at this church. God has fulfilled the very, the very sentiment that he gave those people 47 years ago. He's fulfilled that. This church is incredible. I've never been more proud and more attached to a people but that comes with a cost because I have a responsibility. I can't just boast about what we do. I have to warn what we shouldn't do, what we could become. I don't have the luxury to just remind us of how great we are and how great things are. No, because the enemy is trying to enter in and choke out the grace that's in our church. If anyone thinks I wanted to talk about politics or race or any of that stuff, then you don't really know me. But if I think that's going to enter in and choke out the relationships that have been established in this church, you best believe I'm going to be on it. I have no desire to do another political message, but let that affect our church. I'll be right back up here with a red, white, and blue suit on. Shirt. I ain't wearing no suit. Looking like Biggie in old, old 95 wearing a suit. Oh. If there wasn't fruit in this church, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. But we have to ask ourselves, what is the fruit producing? The seed is sown. What's it producing right now? Because you know one thing about, about growth being inevitable instead of intentional? You know why that happens? When you remember that you, were, you, were, that you grew before, like past growth is somehow sufficient for today. No, 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 no. Yesterday's obedience don't, don't got nothing on today. 
Don't focus on how much you used to read the Bible when you first got saved and how passionate you were about evangelism when you first got saved. Man, how many people started off well and then left the faith? Remember Judas. He was with Jesus and saw everything and still rejected him. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. Every time me and Mike hear about a pastor or some religious figure who has some scandal or fell off or did something, we're just like, man. And the first thing we always say is what? There go I before the grace of God. We're not exempt. Let's stay focused. Now, some people have said, I don't know what this looks like practically, how to do this. I can't really answer that because then it becomes a checklist of things that Kurt says it should look like. And then if you do these things, it's like, I'm good. If you don't do those things, you're discouraged. I can't answer that fully, but we will get into in the next coming weeks some more practicals. Having said that, this week, I do not want you to read chapter four in your groups. We're going to read chapter four next week and talk about it at one another. I want to send questions out to the leaders to have you ask questions of yourself in a more personal way, in terms of applying love, not using a book. We'll get back to that next week. So no chapter four this week. If you've read it, good, you're ahead of the game. No chapter four this week. This week, we're just going to spend time talking with each other with some other questions about how do we process this? How do we do this practically for who we are and where we are? Knowing that this year has been a test like no other, and it's not even over. I love when people say, man, I can't wait till 2021 happens. <laughs> well, 2021 carries over everything that happened in 2020, so I've never known it, unless it's the year of Jubilee, I've never known the years of change would be something different. So uh, I expect 2021 to be chaotic too. The, ch the chaos is here. But you know who else is Christ? Christ is here. Christ is greater than the chaos. What did he say? Greater is he in me than, he, than in the world. But we have to fight for that. The enemy's coming in to choke out the word. Don't let that seed that was sown in you that's been bearing fruit 30, 60, 100. If you're discouraged about your growth, like sometimes I am, Remind yourself that God said 30, 60, 100 fold. Growth is not going to be inevitable. But Jesus sees not everyone's going to have the same level of growth. But we have to take seriously this. Because you will not inevitably get it. The more we're away from each other, the easier it will be to think about the world according to self. And we'll lose, potentially lose, the grace that has been, that has characterized this church. Let's pray. Father, you knew, you know. You have sovereignly called us to live in this moment. I love that you allow Jesus to pray for the disciples. And when he prayed, I love when Jesus says certain things. When he says, I do not pray for the world. Jesus said, I don't pray for the world. 
I don't even pray that you take them out of the world. But I pray that you would use them in the world. You're not taking us out of the world. But you're using us in the world. But our world looks different this year. And you know this, Lord. It looks different. It's more digital. It's less physical. We've been challenged in our faith in ways that we hadn't expected. Ways that I thought our church would overcome easily have been challenged to some degree. Not fully, not. But just relationships are not inevitable. They're intentional. And you've called us to something greater. I don't know what your will is in in terms of what's going to happen pragmatically in the world. I don't know what's going to happen practically. I don't know who's going to win the election. I don't know how that's going to affect people. I don't know if Who's, what, what riots are going We don't know those things. What I do know is you've given me a responsibility, as well as Mike and others, to, to care for this church and the people in this church. And you've given me a responsibility to some degree to influence other people outside of this church, all of which I take very seriously, but not more than this church. Father, you know I'm trying. I'm not the greatest at anything. I want to be faithful to some things, not all things. I pray that you'd help me to communicate in a way that blesses, that encourages, that strengthens. But I pray that you would soften the hearts and ears of those who are, to some degree, have their own issues. Help us welcome the word. Continue to welcome, for we've already welcomed it in our hearts. You've given us your grace. You've given us faith to believe in you. We're here because of that. This church stands because of that. Despite, the, despite this pandemic, we're still logging in and seeing people. If not, some people I haven't seen since March 15th. But some people I get to see through a screen. It's not the same, but it's something. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to as you are clearly showing the church in particular, the lovelessness that has been pervasive in our church history in America. It's just easy to be critical, sinful, and judgmental of other people and to somehow think that you're pleased by that, especially other believers. Father, I pray that you'd help us to take seriously as overwhelming as it can be as distracted as we often are, to take seriously your word for our glory, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.